0: May 27, 2018 was the last time I had a conversation with my son, Jordan Martin McNair. He was excited about football conditioning practice starting the next day, as any 19-year-old would be, with aspirations of making it to the NFL one day. Less than 24 hours later, I was telling Jordan, son, if you can hear me, squeeze my finger. Son. If you can hear me, blink your eyes. Last Sunday, June the 13th, we honored the third year of Jordan's death as my family visited the cemetery from a 100% preventable heat stroke suffered that day of conditioning practice. I relived these last few weeks of my son fighting for his life from May 28th to June the 13th for the last three years. I can't get out of my mind that the athletic trainer on the field that day yelling, if he can't walk, drag his ass across the field. As my son's core body temperature was above 140 degrees, he was in a full heat stroke. One hour and 46 minutes passed before my son finally made it to the hospital emergency that day. When in America sends their student athlete away to college, then they be abused mentally, physically, or in our case, worse. Especially when it's at the hands of the coaching staff we entrust our most precious gifts with.
1: Yeah, I can go first. Thank you, Senator. I definitely would support the College Athlete Bill of Rights. I think the NCAA right now, the system is working for how it is currently built, which is on injustice and inequity and exploitation. I definitely think the biggest issue is the lack of accountability. Thank you, Senator. I completely agree. I think it's obvious that the NCAA is more concerned with enforcing matters of athletes monetizing their NIL as opposed to these issues that we're discussing of health care and health and safety. So yes, I would 100% be student-athlete both
0: I'll say one thing. When Jordan passed, NCAA insurance policy for all the student-athletes is $10,000. The life of a student-athlete, of an organization that makes Hundreds of million dollar, billion on industry is only worth $10,000. Of course, I support the bill. It's needed.
1: Yeah, um, thank you. I think that a bigger part of the problem is that we're underestimating the interests of these coaches in winning games. And we're underestimating the interests of the athletic department in protecting their image publicly. Athletes are told to report things, like she already mentioned, in-house. But when it comes down to that, there's still the interest that wins out of winning games, keeping your job, maintaining the image of the organization that is put over the interests of student athlete health and well-being. I don't think athletes really trust that many professionals at the institution. I believe there's a dangerous culture in athletics that a lot of times it motivates athletes to, one, push through injuries, but two, accept mistreatment because they believe it's just part of the culture. When we look at the power dynamics of a university, even from the individual athlete level, then you have a coach, then you have the AD, then you still have the chancellor of the school. So even for a lot of these issues that we talked about, if the athlete brought it up to the coach and if the coach actually agreed and brought it up to the AD, there's still limitation, I think, from the top down of protecting the image. Yeah, I think a lot of what we discussed here today as far as we can build upon states, one, California's efforts is something to look at. Um, Two, what we want to avoid is such heavy restrictions that we can't actually, uh, athletes cannot actually monetize their NIL as they would like to. I think it's impossible to divorce monetizing your name, image, and likeness from the health and safety concerns because as I mentioned previously, it is our bodies that have built this industry. I think it's also important to discuss the racial component and that to be emphasized. In D1 sports, football and men's basketball are the highest revenue generating sports. A majority of these athletes are Black. However, a majority of the individuals that are making money off of this industry that are created off the backs of these athletes are white. These athletes have limited resources in their ability to advocate for themselves. Therefore, I would encourage the committee to once more look at this issue as a civil rights matter.
2: Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, which is bigamateurism.com. And I've got some good stuff in my blog that I've been writing in for well over two years now. And that blog can be found at cagerredux.com, C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right. As I predicted in my last episode, this hearing today on June 17th in the Commerce Committee that with a panel of athletes it was uh, really interesting. <laughs> and it was interesting in ways that were different from the ways I thought that it might be. And we had a really powerful panel, which surprised me a little bit. I was concerned that this panel was going to be loaded up with NCAA true believers out in the student-athlete ranks, and the NCAA has cultivated an army of true believers. But these witnesses were just phenomenal, just really difficult to describe in words just how, how good they were on so many levels. But we had four witnesses. We had Martin McNair, who was actually the father of a former Maryland football player, Jordan McNair. And Jordan died from heat stroke in June of 2018. And it was the result of what some believe were abusive tactics by the Maryland Strength and Conditioning Coach. And this got a lot of publicity. You may remember it. But Jordan collapsed during a summer workout. And so his father, Martin, started a foundation designed to advocating for athlete safety particularly with respect to heat-related issues. And in that montage, the very first quote was Mr. McNair's opening statement, and, and it was just heartbreaking. It was just really heartbreaking. Mr. McNair offered some really important insights, and he's been devoted to these issues full-time for the last three years, and I'm going to talk about some of the things that he had to say. And then we also had Christina Chenault, was a former track and field star at UCLA. And then we had Kiara Brown, who is a current track athlete at Vanderbilt. And then we had Sari Curitan, who is a former Georgetown women's basketball player. All four of the witnesses are African-American. And when I first saw the witness list, I was concerned because there wasn't a single revenue-producing athlete, a Power 5 football or men's basketball player on the list. And that's a weakness in the history of these hearings going back to February of 2020. But I gotta tell you, wow, uh, Miss Chenault and Miss Curitan in particular, they are so fluent on the issues of the day in big-time college sports and they really were impressive. So, I could spend the entire episode just talking about the incredible things they had to say. And there were so many great quotes. It was hard for me to put together the montage. And I hope I did it in a way that uh, does justice to the quality of their testimony. But what I wanted to do is just link to the hearing. I couldn't find it on C-SPAN. C-SPAN didn't pick it up, apparently. But the Commerce Committee website has it. So I'm going to give you the link to that. And I would say that If you've been paying attention to these athletes' rights issues, or if you just care about college sports, you absolutely need to listen to this hearing. You only got about, I don't know, an hour and 45 minutes, I think. And there was some interesting attendance at the hearing. I'm going to talk about that, too, because so much of what I took away from the hearing really relates to the political side, where I think this is headed. And there were some really interesting previews there. I'm going to talk in detail about that, because unfortunately, despite the quality of this testimony and the importance of the testimony— Ultimately, this is a political question now. We have to really set the table and look at where we are in that process and what the next steps are going to be. And I think it's going to happen quickly. But I just want to say on the athletes, they hit on some really important themes. So I'm just going to talk thematically real quickly about what they said. And what they were consistent on and what they didn't back down from because Maria Cantwell, in a very subtle way, was trying to pull them towards some of the talking points that we hear from Roger Wicker and Jerry Moran and the Republican proxies for the NCAA in the United States Senate and the, the guys who were carrying the NCAA's water. And I was concerned about the way that Cantwell conducted this hearing. And it was, again, very subtle stuff, but it's important. It's really important. But one of the things that was a consistent theme among these athletes is that the NCAA and the schools that are in the big-time college sports sweepstakes, they only care about three things, their money, their brand, and their reputation. That's it. And every athlete issue that presents itself in the big-time college sports marketplace is subordinated to those institutional values which are in direct conflict with athlete well-being. The other thing that came up, and this is a related issue, but the decision-makers, because of this institutional hypocrisy, The decision makers up and down the chain of command are hampered by a disqualifying conflict of interest in almost every decision they make about college sports at the institutional level. And that leads to another theme that came up. And this was really heartbreaking. And you could hear it in these athletes' voices. You could just hear it. And I got to tell you, these women were poised and they were tough. And they knew their stuff, and they weren't going to get jerked around. They were just impressive. And you have to remember that these women are in their early 20s. And I'm just trying to think back to when I was their age. And, I, God, I, I don't know what I would have done sitting at that table with a microphone in front of me. And I guess that, that leads me to another point I, I want to say. So I don't talk a lot about uh, my athletic background. I talked about it in the first episode, and I've referenced it a couple of times. But I played basketball at Duke. And l- like Miss Curitan, I, I started as a walk-on. And then I, I got a, a full scholarship. And then my senior year, I was a team captain. And So I saw both sides of the world in, in big-time college sports, one kind of from the outside in and then ultimately from the inside out And she had that same perspective and, and had some great insights on h- how her experience was different from the players who were carrying the laboring ore in the big time college sports marketplace. But I have been very careful not to try to speak to what the athletes today are experiencing at the grassroots experiential level because I have no idea. Honestly, I have no idea what it's like. I, I have some anecdotal insights because I've worked with kids my entire life in basketball and I've seen them go you know, through high school and into college. And so I get a little snapshot here and there. But unless you're living it, you really don't know what's going on in the real world of college athletes. And so I was waiting, hoping. That we would see in a public forum, some athletes come in and talk about what their experience is in in 2021 and what it was in 2020 and all the insanity and the COVID-inspired insanity. And my belief was that these athletes, they have really powerful feelings and important insights. And boy, was that true in, in what I heard And saw yesterday, and I am really happy that I have resisted the temptation to try to speculate on what life might be like for these athletes based on my experience in the early 1980s, because these women articulated it in a way that only they could. And boy, are they powerful spokespeople for college athletes, male, female, revenue, non-revenue. It doesn't matter. They were speaking to the athlete experience, the broader athlete experience, and did so with a level of maturity and insight that was just really amazing. So I, I really urge you to listen to the hearing. But another theme that came up in that was that because of the institutional motivation to preserve brand and image and reputation the systems that have been built the intra-institutional systems mostly through the athletics department are designed to keep everything in-house they don't want anybody outside of the protected bubble of their athletics department to know the dirty laundry and they will go to extraordinary lengths they meaning all of these athletics administrators and all these people whose uh, salaries are funded by uh, big time football and big time men's basketball players. And they don't want the outside world to know what the hell's going on in the locker rooms, in the practices, in the real uh, world that these athletes live in. And that generates another dynamic, which is another theme that came up. And that is athletes are scared to death to speak up and speak out. And that's another thing. These athletes show extraordinary bravery because even though Ms. Curiton and Miss Chenault are no longer athletes, they're not subject to all the forces that they would have to worry about and the retribution that might come back to them if they spoke. If these women said when they were athletes what they said today— Boy, it's hard to imagine what that would look like at the institutional level. And I thought it was really interesting that Ms. Brown, the current student athlete at uh, Vanderbilt, when she was talking about the Athletes' Bill of Rights and the NCAA's ability to govern in the best interest of the athletes, she was real clear to draw a distinction between her concerns about the NCAA and how well she was treated at Vanderbilt. And I have no doubt that a lot of these schools do the best that they can, but there are built-in conflicts of interest that simply predominate in a lot of the decision-making and the ways that the athlete interests are viewed and the way that athletics departments are structured and the way that the institutions operate at the decision-making level and the oversight level. But I thought that was really interesting. She wanted to make real clear that her school did it the right way. But still, even as former athletes, this still takes an enormous amount of bravery because it's going to be hard for them to walk back on campus and go into the athletics departments and be treated as honored guests. I talked about this in the last episode, the way these people think, these institutional stakeholders think, It's like this evangelistic kind of thinking about their mission. They view it as a crusade, and they are wearing the white hats. And if you don't agree 100%, then you're wearing the black hat. There's no middle ground with these people, none. And that climate and culture is so abusive at the institutional level that it's almost impossible to fight back against. And that was a point that these athletes made very well. And when you listen to what they have to say after hearing five hearings over, I don't know, 16 months now of NCAA propaganda that makes these kids out to be the bad actors, you come away from this hearing After listening to these women, and you have some questions now about who the real bad actors are, and that's the way that we should be talking about college sports in the 21st century. The other thing is that the issue of race came up, and these women spoke honestly about that and made the point quite eloquently that the sports that generate all the revenue, that pay for this entire multi-billion dollar industry are mostly African-American. And so Ms. Kiriton talked about that, and she said, look, this is a civil rights issue. This isn't just some polite theoretical discussion about athletes trying to make money as social influencers and all this Mickey Mouse stuff that the NCAA has talked about in terms of its voluntary rules-making. This is a real civil rights issue, and it's one thing. When Chris Murphy, the Democrat from Connecticut, or Richard Blumenthal, the other Democrat from Connecticut, both senators, who have really taken up the mantle of athletes' rights. But they're a couple of old white guys. <laughs> I'm an old white guy. And I can talk uh, myself blue in the face about civil rights. But at the experiential level, I can't speak with any... Credibility to what these athletes experience as African American athletes. And these women can speak to that. And it also seemed to me, this was really important, and I just loved to hear this. These athletes were connected to the male athletes, the male revenue-producing athletes. They're communicating. They agree on a lot. I think there may be some things that they may not agree on, but they're working together, and they're sharing their playbooks, and that's a beautiful thing. When I went on my mini gender equity rant in one of the episodes right after the Austin argument, and that was the result of this disclosure in the women's basketball tournament, there was this really obvious disparity in the facilities that the women had, and that's a problem. And I, th- I think that these, the women really understand what the revenue-producing men are going through. They understand the importance of their labor to the overall business model of big-time college sports. There's mutual respect, and there's common ground. That's power. That is power. And I really think there's an opportunity here, particularly if the Senate doesn't do the right thing here, There's an opportunity for these athletes, the the men and the women, particularly the African-American men and women, to come together in a way that could have a resonance that I think is going to be difficult to respond to in the traditional rich white guy, Senate, NCAA way. I just don't think that card's going to play well when these issues see the light of day in a public forum. It's a whole different ballgame. And I said that in, in my post about the uh, bait-and-switch campaign that I wrote, I don't know, pro- probably almost a year ago. And I went through all the witnesses that had testified in all of the four hearings in 2020. And it was just an overwhelming NCAA Power 5 witness list. And the narrative was so controlled, and it was reinforced and amplified by an NCAA Power 5-friendly media that is carrying their water. And they're playing the same sheet of music. And you come away from that with this sense that there's only one way to look at it. And this hearing today turned that narrative upside down. Because not only is there another way to look at it, the other way to look at it is the way that we should have been looking at it all along. And if this hearing had been conducted in February of 2020, rather than that dog and pony show that occurred under Jerry Moran's leadership, Roger Wicker's leadership, in the Commerce Committee, where it was just a parade of NCAA witnesses disguising their motives and just going down the litany of talking points to set the narrative. And in Washington, D.C., that is a powerful tactic and a powerful advantage, and they fully exploited that. If this hearing today, if Sari Cheriton, and Christina Chenault and Martin McNair testify on February 11th, 2020, we have a whole different ballgame. It's just a completely different discussion. And the fact that this hearing only occurred on the fly, it wasn't planned, this is an add on. I talked about this in the last episode. There is no question about that. This is being done in a way that's going to obscure its importance, at least the, the content of the hearing is going to be obscured by all of this insanity that is playing out coming up on this July 1st deadline and the fact that this Austin decision is going to come down any day now. And when I talk about the attendance at these two hearings and the specific senators that have shown interest in this and where I think they may land, You understand that this is nothing more than a chess game to these guys. They don't give a damn about these athletes. They don't give a damn about civil rights. They don't give a damn about athletes' rights. They don't give a damn about nil compensation. They care about one thing, protecting the business interests of the NCAA and the Power Five and all of their satellite commercial interests. And that's why both bills that have come out of that committee, one from Roger Wicker, one from Jerry Moran, are... Right down the line of what the NCAA wants, and if they get it, the athletes' rights movement is over. And so, another thing that was important is that this hearing, for the first time, drew the stark line between the athletes' bill of rights legislation that Richard Blumenthal, and Cory Booker, and I think I think that Brian Schatz was part of this. But that legislation is on one side of the earth and on the exact opposite side of the earth are the Wicker and Moran plans. And there's not much middle ground here. And I'm going to go into those bills in some detail. But the Athletes' Bill of Rights would fundamentally turn the existing business model upside down. It would toss amateurism, the collegiate model, and the NCAA's conceptualization of the student-athlete Out the window. It would force the NCAA into the 21st century. It would give athletes a meaningful package of rights. And there would be a truly independent commission set up that the NCAA had nothing to do with that would enforce the rights provided in the Athletes Bill of Rights. And that is, again, just on the other side of the earth from these commissions that Wicker and Moran have proposed, that would be nothing more than disguised NCAA bureaucracy. And so trying to bring those two together is very difficult. And one of the things I think Cantwell is trying to do here, and this is giving her the benefit of the doubt, because honestly, at the end of the hearing, she was essentially reading from that uh, Moran bill that is so... Chalk full of smoke and mirrors to disguise a level of cynicism and dishonesty that just shocks the conscience. This Moran bill is by far the most aggressive pro-NCAA, pro-Power 5, pro-big-time college sports business interest bill of any bill that's been introduced in the Senate, the House, or any state legislature or proposed by any independent commission. And Maria Cantwell is treating that bill as a legitimate template for a compromise that I think she wants to strike. And I believe this, again, giving her the benefit of the doubt, I believe she is so focused on this bipartisan outcome that she is going to find any pathway to get a bill that more than fifty one senators can vote on. And when I go and break down the senators on the Commerce Committee and then just on that committee alone, there's some Democrat votes that I think that Cantwell could pull towards the side of a Moran Wicker style bill. And if boy, if that happens and, and if Maria Cantwell thinks that her bipartisanship is going to be part of her legacy, she does not want that bill on her resume because it would be a train wreck and it would be a travesty that is an affront to civil rights. But you could just see it in the way that she handled this hearing that because of the fundamental differences in these two approaches, the athletes bill of rights on the one hand, and then the Wicker Moran approach on the other in resolving the obvious tension there, she's leaning towards the Wicker Moran approach and Three of the witnesses, Ms. Curiton, Ms. Chenault, and Mr. McNair, all agreed with the Athletes' Bill of Rights approach. And again, so one of the components of that is revenue sharing. So the entire amateur student-athlete collegiate model is built around no payments from the universities to the athletes. The revenue sharing would require payments from the universities to the athletes. And half of the revenue that's generated would go back to the athletes. So what is Cantwell going to do? And some of this is purely political. How is she going to get the votes? Which is more likely to get legislative approval? And the way that these two proposals have been pitched in the media, and I've been saying this since the very beginning of my writing and talking about this, is that the... True reform bills, the true reform planks of the Athletes Bill of Writer has been viewed as the outlier. Just like that Murphy-Sanders bill that simply wanted to speak the truth about the relationship between the revenue-producing athletes and the universities. And that is that it is an employer-employee relationship, not a student-athlete relationship. That's a fraud. But the Murphy-Sanders bill was viewed as dead on arrival. Whereas the Wicker and the Moran bill, because of the way that the big-time in-system stakeholders, including the media, have presented them, seem reasonable. And they're not reasonable. They turned the clock back on athletes' rights 70 years. We're back in the 1950s. And nobody is looking honestly at what is actually in these bills. So if Cantwell is thinking about her legacy, and she wants to be the bipartisan uh, senator that brought everybody together, that would be great if, if it were possible. I don't know if it is, because when you look at where these senators really uh, fall on the Commerce Committee, we're back to this very partisan divide. And I, I don't know how it's going to be reconciled. And last year, I guess this was in August, uh, mid-August of 2020, I wrote a post titled, Athletes' Rights Are Now Partisan Political Theater. And this was after the hearings in the Senate Judiciary Committee in July 22nd, where there was some discussion for the first time about this athlete's bill of rights that was a prominent part of the hearing today in commerce. And Senators Booker and Blumenthal said that they were going to come out with a proposal that addressed... At a meaningful level, at a structural level, some of these athletes' rights issues. And Lindsey Graham, the senator from South Carolina, who was chair of the Judiciary Committee at the time. Again, the Republicans controlled the Congress in 2020. He just looked at them and said, okay, well, just get me something. Get me something quickly. It was clear that Graham was feeling the heat at the time. And this was when the NCAA and the Power Five, and I would say more Power Five than NCAA because the Power Five had really asserted itself in this for a senate bill that was going to give them the iron throne of college sports regulation but the power five were really pressing the gas and graham was getting heat from the grassroots folks in south carolina i think particularly the clemson fans and the clemson athletic director dan radakovich was a witness at that judiciary committee hearing so booker and blumenthal Put something together, and they get it to Graham or put it out for public release and review in mid-August. And it was this the outline, the contours of this athlete's bill of rights. And it was clear that that was not well received by the in-system stakeholders and by the NCAA's proxies in the Senate. And it really drew this stark partisan line between the Democrats who were supporting athletes' rights and the Republicans who were all in for the NCAA, although they weren't being honest about that. And through this process now, we're coming up on almost a year since that played out, and we haven't gotten any closer to a compromise or a meaningful solution. And these two views of the world I think really speak to some broader issues in our society, in our culture, and in the way that we think about the relationship between the powerful and the powerless. And the athletes in this system are powerless. And you cannot come away from anything but that understanding, listening to these athletes' testimony today. And this brings me to the next point. This time a year ago, we were on the backside of the George Floyd murder. And news cycles move so fast and there's so much information to take in that George Floyd's murder feels like it was 10 years ago, not one year ago. But at that time, early July, I wrote a series of posts that really went to the race issue and it's so difficult to talk about. But in the aftermath of that tragic event, the in-system stakeholders and the institutional power brokers across America and in all aspects of American culture and society were saying the right things. And in the college sports world, where there's an obvious dynamic of racial exploitation You had in-system stakeholder beneficiaries falling all over themselves to put out statements and run to the nearest microphone to talk about social justice and this is not who we are and we've got to change and all the usual stuff that happens in this cycle, this cycle that repeats itself again and again and again where we have this flashpoint moment. Then we have the ritualized response to it. And then outpourings of anger and violence in the communities that live closest to the residue of institutional and societal racism. And then you have the same forces that started the problem in the first place coming back around to quash the rebellion. And it's just a heartbreaking cycle. But it happens again and again and again. And in the sports world, it was just shocking to me. That the statements that were coming from the NCAA, from the big time conferences, from university presidents, from Hall of Fame coaches, and from the sports commentariat were uh, a mile wide and a quarter inch deep. And all they talked about, the only safe terrain for them was to talk about social justice and racial inequality at the broadest societal levels, and they were very, very careful, all of them, very, very careful, not to speak in terms of those very issues in the context of the industry that they work and live in, because that would shine a a light on these injustices that could be very easily corrected with just a stroke of a pen or a change of heart. Or a press conference from the Hall of Fame coaches saying, we're not going to take this anymore and we need to treat these athletes as Americans. Because one of the things that came out of the George Floyd murder and the public outcry and then the institutional response is that African Americans believe legitimately that they simply aren't Americans on the same term as white Americans. And I think that's a difficult observation to criticize when you look at, At how quickly the white institutional power structures came back around after all their preening and public posturing and woke comments, right back to the place they were the day before George Floyd was murdered. And the NCAA could not be a better example of that. The NCAA put on its website, and it has this uh, media center link that has This running list of these little press releases that the NCAA puts out, and I've talked about this in prior episodes, but it is a propaganda machine and following these headlines is really an easy way to just look at how the ncaa thinks about issues of public importance or importance in the sports world or in the ncaa world and it's comical almost because it's just so easy to see what the patterns are they're like the roman emperor giving the thumbs up or the thumbs down to things that are happening out in the uh, sports world as if they have that authority. And they essentially have been granted that authority, at least at the symbolic level. But after George Floyd's murder, the first statement that came from the NCAA is on this site. And you have to go to the link to, to see just how it presents on the screen but it's just a scroll through running list of these little blurbs and you don't get the full article you can can click on to read more but what you get are just a headline and then a couple of sentences but a lot of these are very brief and they run the range as they talk about ministerial stuff and changes that are happening and meetings that are coming up and people who have died and all that kind of stuff but on George Floyd's murder Here is what was put on the NCAA website. The title is NCAA President Mark Emmert's Message to Membership on Inequality and Injustice. And it says, The killing of George Floyd last week laid bare the continued existence of inequality and injustice in America. The college athletic community must be clear in our stand that it cannot be tolerated. As we look across our nation today, we cannot ignore the impact of racial disparity, whether in those stricken by the coronavirus, by the lack of economic and educational opportunity, or by the injustices that cost Mr. Floyd his life. Sports historically has been a catalyst for social change and through our leadership and the way we treat one another, each of us can continue to make a difference. We must therefore commit ourselves individually and collectively to examining what we can do to make our society more just and equal. We have not done enough. We can do better. Mark Emmert, NCAA, President. And wow, I mean, that's just a breathtaking insult. To black athletes under the ncaa's thumb because mark emmert doesn't speak to them at all he says nothing about the circumstances of black athletes in, at the ncaa nor the fact that his job his four million dollar a year salary and his job the existence of the ncaa national office itself is dependent upon black labor this statement could have been written by a middle school specific student or by a summer intern. And the arrogance with which Emmert and the NCAA treat this issue of racial justice in the context of George Floyd's murder just shows you how they see the world. And the other thing about the way that this was presented is that, again, in this scrolling list of uh, headlines— This statement from Mark Emmert is sandwiched between two other stories, apparently of equal newsworthiness. The one above it is titled, and this is from June 1st of 2020, is titled Men's Lacrosse Rules Committee Proposes Changes to Face-Offs. That's important stuff right there. And then on the other side of the sandwich, beneath it, On May 29th, 2020, is that D3, the Division 3, reduces number of required contests. Sandwiched between those two bombshells is a statement from the NCAA's white male $4 million a year president making a mockery of social justice and racial inequality. And he got away with it. He had virtually no pushback. And one of the reasons he didn't is because all of his comrades out in the field, up and down the ranks in the big-time college sports marketplace, are also white, male, and rich. So they weren't going to turn on each other. They were all just running for cover. And this was a perfect example of that. But it just goes to show you how powerless these athletes are. And in this hearing today, If you didn't take anything away from it but this, it's that these athletes are not being heard. They have an experience that is not on the table in all of these consequential discussions. And the decision makers who who are going to dictate the future of college sports and the relationship between these very athletes and the institutions who benefit from them isn't being talked about honestly. And so a year later... As we're heading into Juneteenth, and there's been a lot of discussion about that because Congress has voted to make it a national holiday. But heading into a a period that should be full of introspection and honest accountability about what's going on in this country at the social, racial, and cultural level. Instead, what we're getting are temper tantrums from a bunch of white senators who are angry that somebody actually disagrees with them. And that was on full display in this hearing yesterday. The lack of self-awareness and the lack of concern for how this looks, because boy, it is a really bad look. So what happened at this hearing is that there were 10 senators who showed up. Nine of them were Democrat. The only Republican senator who showed up was Jerry Moran. And... I think there was an ulterior motive there that I'll talk about briefly here in a minute. But apparently, after this hearing on June 9th, a hearing that I believe was very favorable to NCAA Power 5 interests, as I've discussed, because it set the template for this... A uniformity issue that everybody agrees, nobody disagrees, uniformity, uniformity, which is the pathway to preemption. And I've talked about that in some detail. So the NCAA and Power Five and Roger Wicker and Jerry Moran and all of the NCAA's water carriers in the Senate, they came away from that feeling pretty good because they thought they were on their way to getting the states completely taken out of the regulatory field before July 1st. And then out of nowhere comes this hearing and It was kind of like, what's going on here? And I talked about that as well. And it turns out that the Democrats pushed for this hearing. And it happened quickly. It happened on the fly. It was a Democrat witness list. And I'm speaking about this in partisan political terms. So when I say Democrat interest or Republican interest, that's not out of ignorance. That's out of the reality of how this issue has played out. So there is a clear partisan divide. The partisan divide today is not much different than it was when this debate uh, started. And it obviously has racial connotations and a substantial racial component. So the Republicans on the Commerce Committee, the ones who just last week were making the case and laying the foundation for the NCAA to get one step closer to the Iron Throne of college sports regulation, they all of a sudden took their ball and went home, and they boycotted this hearing today. They boycotted the hearing. And that boycott was led by Republican Senator Roger Wicker from Mississippi. And Wicker was apparently dismayed that the hearing was being called so hastily and that the witness list was a Democrat witness list. And he just threw a little temper tantrum, and then he convinced all of his Republican compatriots who just last week were at the, the hearing making the case for the NCAA. All of a sudden, they disappear in the very first hearing in which college athletes had the opportunity to testify about their experience. And it's just a a stunning abdication of responsibility. And the look could not be worse under the circumstances because they were boycotting black athletes. They weren't just boycotting the hearing. They were boycotting black athletes. And they turned their backs on these athletes. And you have to remember, pressing rewind back to February of 2020, this whole campaign to grant the NCAA these extraordinary powers and protections and immunities, started with this kumbaya about this whole nil campaign being for the benefit of athletes. And the NCAA wanted to do the right thing by the athletes, and we care about what these athletes think, and we want to hear from these athletes. And Roger Wicker had sent out some survey, and he wanted to know what people thought about name, image, and likeness. But there wasn't a single athlete, current athlete or revenue producing athlete that was called to testify from the athlete's experience. There was one at the February 11th hearing and he was a NCAA right down the talking points list witness that in my judgment, didn't add a whole lot to the debate, but he was African-American and he was on the NCAA side and that was a convenient witness for the NCAA. So they had no problem playing that card to set the template in February. But this was the first time in the hearing today where a- athletes had the forum to themselves. And it was about the athletes. The purpose of the hearing was to hear from the athletes. That wasn't true in February. But in all these hearings that happened in 21, you kept hearing all this propaganda about how we're all about the athletes. But not a single athlete had testified except for that one in, in February. And... To this day, not a single revenue-producing athlete has been called to testify. So for the first time over six hearings in 16 months, I think there have been a total of 32 witness slots and a total of 26 witnesses that have been called. And finally, there's a hearing where we're actually going to get the thinking and the perspective of real college athletes. And the NCAA and their Republican proxies in the Senate, they just said, up yours. We don't want to hear what you have to say. We don't care what you have to say. We have to be in complete control of the narrative in this debate. And we have been since February of 2020. And if you're not going to play by our rules, we're not going to show up. And it it was just, I mean, there had to have been, I think, some discussion About the potential political fallout here but again you have to remember how powerful these people are and how they have aggregated that power with the NCAA and all of its satellite institutions so you have this juggernaut of uh, political power and these people can control the narrative and when uh, consequential events like a hearing today happen I will go and I have a handful of sources that I look at to see what the response is. And I first go to the NCAA website because they leave a trail like a caterpillar on this media center link. And there's nothing about this hearing. The NCAA does not want to talk about this hearing. And there's nothing on the ESPN website. They have a couple guys who are supposedly tasked to pay attention to these issues and in all these other hearings or the hearings that, the, that are NCAA Power 5 friendly or that get something that the NCAA and Power 5 want to use moving forward, there's an article that amplifies that hearing and that, whatever that thing is that the NCAA wants. There's nothing on the ESPN website. There's nothing in the New York Times. There's nothing in the Wall Street Journal. Where are these people? Well, they're just doing the bidding of the NCAA and the Power Five and the power brokers in the Senate. And they've aggregated their message and their power. And what you get on the backside is crickets because nobody wants to shine a light on what happened today at this hearing. And this is the reality of the college sports world for these athletes. So to put an exclamation point on that. I want to talk just a little bit about these two hearings, the one on June 9th and then the one on June 17th. So there are 28 members of the Senate Commerce Committee. 14 are Democrats and 14 are Republicans. But because the Democrats control the White House and Kamala Harris as vice president would cast the deciding vote in the event of a tie, the Democrats have control over who sits as committee chairs. And that's a very powerful prerogative. So Roger Wicker, who was the Republican chair of that committee through 2020, when the NCAA, the Power Five, and their lawyers, lobbyists, and loyalists in the Senate, had put together this very sophisticated and coordinated campaign to completely eliminate external regulators, including federal courts, state legislatures, and Congress, and achieve for the NCAA the Iron Throne of College Sports Regulation. But now Maria Cantwell, a Democrat from Washington, sits in that seat and she has substantial control over what the witness panels look like. So there were 14 members of the Commerce Committee who attended the June 9th hearing. Eight of them were Republicans, six were Democrat. And remember, at this hearing, the NCAA and Power Five got a lot of what they needed on this preemption issue, and the movers and shakers, the senators who have appeared throughout these hearings since February of 2020, were all in attendance. And I just want to go down the list because only one of these senators attended the hearing today where there were only 10 senators and only one Republican and nine Democrats. So the June 9th hearing had eight Republicans. The hearing today had one Republican, and that was Jerry Moran. So the Republicans who boycotted this hearing were Roger Wicker of Mississippi, Ted Cruz, Texas, Deb Fisher, Nebraska, Mike Lee, Utah, Rick Scott, Florida, John Thune, South Dakota. Marsha Blackburn, Tennessee. And then, of course, we have Moran from Kansas. So all of these senators have figured prominently in the hearings that were conducted up until today, in the five hearings from February 2020 to June of 2021. All these senators have been showing up and promoting NCAA interests. And all of a sudden, they just disappear, And the only one? who made a cameo was Jerry Moran. And I want to talk just a second about that because Moran's bill, I fear, is a template that Maria Cantwell may be working from to try to get some bipartisan buy-in to some of the features that she believes are acceptable to the Republicans and that address in some limited way some of the components of the Athletes' Bill of Rights that Blumenthal and Booker... Have proposed. But the Moran bill is an illusion. And I'm going to talk about that soon because it's so important to understand what that bill actually does, how it disguises its motives, and how the things that Maria Cantwell thinks could be common ground coming out of that bill are nothing more than smoke and mirrors because all those things are things that already exist. And Jerry Moran, he's just pulling a Houdini by putting those issues into his bill as if it's something new and something different and something consequential for athletes. It's none of those things. And what the bill does that is completely disguised would give the NCAA not only the iron throne of college sports regulation, but a complete police state with subpoena power to run roughshod over the rights of the people who actually provide the value in the product. So, So Moran showed up, and it was just a token cameo. I think to just keep alive the features of his bill that he thinks Cantwell may be interested in using to try to forge some kind of a compromise. But Cantwell's coming from a place of, I want to be the bipartisan committee chair. I want to bring people together. But there isn't a whole lot of common ground here. And using Jerry Moran's bill as a template for trying to bring into the discussion some features of the Athletes' Bill of Rights is just going to be complete Uh, train wreck for her because if the Jerry Moran bill were to pass in its current form, that would be the legislative equivalent of the Dred Scott decision. And I, I don't think that's an overstatement because it would simply shut the door on the athletes' rights movement and it would silence the very black athletes who had the courage to speak up at the hearing today. And There was a a part of this hearing that was really distressing to me, but I guess not unexpected. If you've been paying attention to what's going on here and the arrogance with which the NCAA and the Republican senators have wielded the, the power that they had in 2020, you can understand what I'm about to explain and it will not seem so shocking. But during the hearing, because there was only one Republican, so Moran got the privilege of going second. So Cantwell went first as the as a chair of the committee. Then it, it typically, in a hearing like this, the ranking Republican member would uh, then be given the courtesy of going next. And that should have been Roger Wicker, but Roger Wicker led this boycott of black athletes' testimony. So Moran shows up and he goes second. And so he asks a couple of really (laughs) meaningless questions on sexual assault that were already answered. He he was just uh, there to throw out some pandering questions that made it appear like he cared about something. And he decided to go gender equity and appeal to the sensibilities of the women on the committee. And that's important. That's something that we'll talk about as well from the political standpoint. But he didn't really care about what these athletes had to say. And so he does his thing. He makes his token appearance. And I'm assuming that he's sitting there listening to what these athletes have to say. And this was early in the hearing. And then Blumenthal, Richard Blumenthal, went next. And his questions were really good. And his comments were really good. And some of the responses that the athletes and Mr. McNair had to Blumenthal's questions were included in the in this opening montage that I'm going to go through at the end of the episode. But after Blumenthal went Amy Koblichar, and she's a Democrat from Minnesota. And it was an interesting setup from a production standpoint. C-SPAN did not cover this hearing. At least I, I couldn't find anything on their website. So I don't think that there's video from C-SPAN. And the way that C-SPAN sets up their cameras in the hearing rooms, you get a better sense of what the whole room feels like. And it's been a little awkward in the COVID era with all the Zoom stuff, but things are starting to get back to normal. And you're seeing witnesses actually testifying live at hearings and more senators sitting at the Senate table at the front of the room. And you get a kind of a sense of what the overall attendance is and, and who's doing what and all that stuff but when but that wasn't available so the commerce committee did its own feed its own video feed and it's a much different presentation because they just show a image of the person who's speaking and you really don't get a sense of what the room looks like and what it feels like so Moran has done his questions he's done you're led to believe that he cares about this stuff and he's going to actually listen to what the athletes have to say So in response to some of Koblachar's questions, Mr. McNair was sitting at the witness table. He was at the hearing room. He was in Washington. And he's testifying. And then you see these two guys walking behind him as he's speaking. And his testimony was powerful. And it was important. And so your first thought is, man, this is rude. Who who are these guys? And what the hell are they doing? walking right behind this man in the middle of this powerful testimony about his son. And then you see them exiting a door and you can look through the door that's right behind McNair as he's testifying. And it goes out into open space in the Senate building and both guys are carrying their materials. So it's clear that they're not going out for a temporary break. They're not going to the bathroom. They're not going to get a cup of coffee. They're leaving. And that's obvious. So one guy goes through and then the second guy is kind of holding the door. And then he turns and looks back into the hearing room. And guess who it is? It is Jerry Moran. And he just walks out and he's talking to this guy next to him. And there's just an air of complete disrespect and indifference to what they just walked by in that hearing room. And, I mean, even if that hadn't been Jerry Moran, it came across as extraordinarily rude and unprofessional. And you're like, you know, who the hell are these guys? And then you see it's Jerry Moran. And that just tells you where these Republicans are coming from. Jerry Moran, at the very first opportunity, after making a cameo appearance, asking some ridiculous questions, and then pretending to care about what these witnesses have to say, he bolts the hearing room. And he does it in a way that just says, up yours to the athletes, and in particular, up yours to Martin McNair, who just three years earlier saw his son die from the abuse at the hands of the very in-system stakeholder beneficiaries that Jerry Moran is fighting to protect. You know, in Richard Blumenthal's opening comments as he was preparing to ask questions of the witnesses, he said something. He's very low-key, and he's very deliberate, and he's a brilliant man, and he has been around the block a few times. He's been in the Senate for a long, long time. But he, in a really compelling way said he directed his comments to Mark Emerton, the university presidents. And he said to Mark Emerton, to the college presidents, you should be listening. And I'm sure that they were listening, but they, I believe, have the same instinctive response to hearing the truth of the athlete experience that these Republican senators on the commerce committee and Jerry Moran had to this hearing. They don't want to acknowledge the truth of what these athletes had to say. And I wonder, when you go down that list of the Republican senators who participated in this boycott, I wonder how many of them were simply afraid to be sitting in the same hearing room with the athletes. And can you imagine what it would look like if Ted Cruz, with all his bombast, came in with some question that was designed to, to undermine the credibility Of the witnesses or what they were saying, these witnesses would have come right back at him, and that would not have gone well for Cruz. And from a strategic standpoint, they made an interesting call because they did not want that to be a soundbite. They don't want that to to be replayed and sent into the Twitter sphere. And I think that's one of the reasons that in these 2020 hearings, you didn't have any prominent black athlete advocates or civil rights advocates or high-profile black athletes in football or men's basketball testifying at the hearings because those sound bites could have been devastating to the NCAA and the Republican Senate interests that are carrying the NCAA's water. So if you're one of these Republicans and you go to that hearing, you almost have to buy into what the witnesses are saying, or at least pretend to, because you are so afraid of that soundbite. And then it looks like they really care about what these athletes have to say. So they have two stark choices here. One, sit there and take it, which they're not going to do. Or they come up with some manufactured reason to boycott the hearing out of anger that they don't have control of the narrative and fear that they might look like buffoons. So, it was just a very interesting decision, but one that I think reflected cowardice because they've been saying, all these people have been saying all along, we want to have full and open hearings, we want to discuss these issues, we need to thoroughly consider them. Well, regardless of, of how you feel about these issues, if you're a senator, a United States senator, and you understand that the purpose of a hearing is to gather information, whether you agree with the, the content of the testimony or not, you listen. Listen. And you sit there, and you consider, and you keep an open mind, and you think, well, maybe we're thinking about this in the wrong way, or we haven't considered issues that are really important to fold into our decision-making. That's not what happened, because these senators are so stock and barrel bought and paid for by the National Collegiate Athletic Association and the Power Five institutions that reside in the states they represent, that they are simply going uh, pure partisan interest here. And that has implications that transcend this whole discussion about athletes' rights. That's the way that decisions are made in in the United States Senate. The most consequential decisions facing this country are being made with people who think like that and are being influenced by external uh, influences like that. But I think it's very, very difficult to make the case here that these Republican senators give a damn about the athletes. They have not taken any concrete action that shows that they really want to hear from these athletes and understand what the athlete experience is really like. And then after the hearing today, Maria Cantwell holds a press conference. And in that press conference, she says, Look, I don't see us uh, getting anything done before this July 1st deadline. And she didn't say that in the hearing, which was interesting. And who knows what's going on behind the scenes here. But it is clear that Cantwell wants to be the bipartisan committee chair, and she wants a a kumbaya solution here. And towards the end of the hearing, she just went through line by line. She might as well have been reading from the Moran bill and trying to get all of these uh, Moran bill talking points into the record. So that after the fact, there could be some legitimate claim that those issues were considered. And the the committee had taken testimony on those issues. She also did another thing that was interesting earlier in the hearing. She went to each witness and said, do you agree that there should be a nationally uniform name, image, and likeness standard? And each witness said yes. It was yes, 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 yes. And that was right out of the Moran-Wicker playbook and trying to lock these witnesses into this single-issue agreement on uniformity and name, image, and likeness. But that was really an illusion. And this whole concept of uniformity has really operated at two levels, one at the theoretical level, where, yeah, we all want to have the same law, and we want to all be reading from the same page, and boy, that sounds like a good thing. But that is much different from substantive uniformity in a substantive nil law. And there hasn't been a substantive nil law presented to the United States Senate. All these laws are purely theoretical. They grant the NCAA and Power 5 all these extraordinary protections and immunities. And only then will some third party decide, a third party coincidentally, likely controlled by the NCAA itself, is going to decide what the actual limitations of any nil rights are, what the scope of the nil rights are and what if any substantive nil rights will be in the marketplace so the whole way that the uniformity issue has been rolled up in the senate uh, makes it almost impossible to answer no to that question i mean you really have to know your stuff to say no and let me explain why because the way you're talking about uniformity i think uh, you're using it in a way that's actually going to undermine the likelihood of substantive nil rights not promote it and the athletes in a less direct way came around to, to that point because when they uh, started saying what they really wanted from congress they first of all linked the name image and likeness rights to all of these other elements of the athletes bill of rights and said you can't separate nil out we have to do both of those things and both chenault and curitan pointed to the california law the fair pay to play act as the starting point or as the floor in talking about appropriate nil rights and so they're talking about expansive nil rights which the athletes bill of rights talks about so even though they said uh, yes 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 on this general question about uniformity when they were answering uh, questions or talking about what they specifically wanted out of a, a nil bill and the specific opportunities that they wanted they're thinking about the california bill and building from there in a way that's more expansive not more restrictive And when there was some discussion about restrictions, and Cantwell jumped all over that, and it was clear to me that she was trying to get these witnesses to buy into some of the uh, restrictions, these draconian restrictions that are contained in the Wicker-Moran bill. And in that sense, she was doing Moran's bidding. And at the very end of the hearing, she went through several things that are camouflage in the Moran bill, the length of the scholarship and medical coverage after graduation and transfer rules. All those things have already been addressed by the NCAA or the Power Five through autonomy legislation. They've already been done and, and Jerry Moran's not presenting anything new, but Cantwell went checkpoint by checkpoint, boom, 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 down Moran's list. And that has me concerned a little bit. So I think what I want to do now, before I close this thing, I was just talking briefly about some of these quotes that are in the opening montage. And the first one that is just so powerful came from Mr. McNair as he was describing how he learned about his son's heat stroke and then what happened between the time that that occurred on May 27th of 2018 and the day that his son died and I think it was June 13th. You have to listen to it. I can't do it justice by describing it, but that really set the tone for the hearing. And then you hear from Christina Chenault and what Blumenthal was trying to get the witnesses to do was to buy into the Athletes' Bill of Rights. And just as Cantwell went to the witnesses and said, do you buy into you know uniformity on nil, Blumenthal did the same thing on buy into the Athletes' Bill of Rights. And Chenault, Curiton, and McNair all said, yes, 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 of course. And in response to that question, Mr. McNair said something that was really powerful as well. And he said, look, when my son died, all I got from this NCAA insurance policy, these insurance products that the NCAA always boasts about, which have very little value to the athletes, but the death benefit under those policies was $10,000, $10,000. And he said, in an organization that makes hundreds of millions or billions of dollars off of athletes, just like... His son, the NCAA and the Power Five and the institutions valued Jordan McNair's life at $10,000. Wow. Then Miss Curitan, she talks about the racial component and... Again, this took enormous courage to just put it out there, and she directly ties the racial component of the business model to the exploited labor in big-time football and big-time men's basketball. And that that's really how this entire industry is built, off of the labor of those athletes and She points out that a disproportionate number of those athletes are black and the disproportionate number of the beneficiaries are white. That is simply, shouldn't be, stop the press's news. But the NCAA and Power Five have been so good at denying that and not talking about it. That seems like some great disclosure and it's really not. She's stating the obvious and she says that's why this needs to be viewed as a civil rights matter and she also points out that a lot of these athletes in the revenue producing sports don't have the resources or the ability to advocate for themselves. They don't have lobbyists working on their behalf. They have a couple of senators, a few senators, small handful of senators that have taken up their cause but they don't have the most powerful lobbying firm in D.C. being paid millions of dollars to Constantly beat into the United States Senate the interests of the NCAA doping Power Five. There's no presence like that advocating for the athletes at the political level. In fact, all of the, the advocacy that's occurring uh, behind the scenes is to defeat the interests of these athletes, and they're completely powerless. And then Ms. Chenault talks about the quiet influences, the invisible influences that impact the experience of athletes. And so much of it goes into this crazed quest for winning and for gaining or preventing from losing a competitive advantage and from trying to make sure that nothing that could damage the brand makes it in to the public arena. And all of those dynamics are so powerful, and athletes operate in an atmosphere of fear, of absolute fear. And that all the institutional interests always trump the individual interests of the athletes when it goes to some of the core elements of athlete well-being, including basic health and safety, and mental health. There was a lot of discussion about mental health, and that just gets brushed under the rug, and this is another thing that the NCAA's been so good at. They have all these committees, and they issue these press releases on a mental health conference and mental health committee, but they don't do a damn thing at the grassroots level because that's an inconvenient topic, and these athletes are afraid to speak out. And they're afraid to seek help within their own institution, because they're afraid that information is going to come back to harm them. And that is a legitimate concern. And that came through loud and clear. And that goes to a trust issue. And and both Chenault and Curitan said, we don't trust the people in system. The athletes don't trust the people in system because they're not trustworthy. And they are always operating from this massive conflict of interest. And their loyalties are first and foremost to the institutional interests, which are money, brand, image, reputation. That's it. And that message has never been put on the table in a public hearing in this entire nil debate. And that's why it is so, so important. And then Chenault and Curitan both talk about what they want from federal legislation. And again, and this really goes to undermine what Cantwell was trying to do by trying to isolate this unanimity on uniformity. But they're talking about doing any kind of federal legislation in a way that puts the freedoms of the athletes and the well-being of the athletes first and foremost. And they're coming back to the California law on nil and to the Athletes' Bill of Rights. And all of these quotes are just really powerful. And again, I, this is just a low-hanging fruit as I saw it, and I and it would encourage you to listen to the full hearing. So with that, I think I'm going to close this out, and who knows where this is going to go. And I don't think these state laws are going to be as big a deal as the NCAA and Power Five have made them out to be. This was a manufactured crisis. It looks like they may not get what they want from the manufactured crisis. And so now they're crying in their cereal. But what the next move is, I don't know, but one of the most important dynamics coming out of this whole congressional campaign and the insanity of what happens inside the Beltway in the political process is that These powerful interests, the NCAA, the Power Five, the senators carrying their water, the lawyers, the lobbyists, they're not going away. They're getting paid top dollar money that's generated by revenue-producing Division I men's basketball players. They are laying awake at night thinking about the next move and how they're going to strategize to get their way. They're simply not going away. And that's why it's so important to really stay on top of this stuff. So with that, I'll close this out. And I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a pleasure to have you. And I hope you'll be back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.